0: Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon.
1: But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Acts 9, 1 through 9. The grass withers and the flower fades. but The word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God.
0: Well, church family, we've been going through a series on the book of Acts to the end of the earth, and we've been looking at the continuation of the work of Jesus, who was crucified, resurrected, and now ascended into heaven, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And so today's story that you just heard is probably the most famous conversion story in the bible we see a murderer a murderer completely <clears throat> completely transformed into a vessel of god's love and truth and on mission for god's kingdom it's the story of the apostle paul who wrote 13 books of the new testament And he's also known as Saul. So as we go through this, you'll hear me use those two names interchangeably, because we know him as both, as Saul and Paul. And so as we listen to this radical story of transformation, we'll listen for how change actually happens. So let's dig into the story. Jack, I'll take that from you. Thank you, sir. All right, so let's, uh, let's dig in here. First verse, chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Paul, as you see, has been ravaging the church. In Jerusalem, he was going house to house, having people arrested. We saw a couple weeks ago that he approved of Stephen's killing. So Stephen was martyred. When that happened, the church scatters. uh, Everyone leaves Jerusalem. And so Saul wants to get ahead of it here. He wants to get ahead of the spread and shut it down. And so he goes to the high priest and asks for letters to the synagogues so that he can take these letters and say, can I come in and arrest anyone in here who's proclaiming the name of Jesus. Now, why? Why do you think Saul would do that? He had a set of beliefs that were contrary to the gospel. He believed that God would never become a human. Paul believed that, Paul, uh, that God would never end the temple system with its sacrifices. He saw a Jesus that died in weakness. Paul believed in a Messiah that would come in strength. And so this was all so offensive to him, maddening, and he wanted to stop it. And so he enters onto the road. He's going to go, and he's going to get ahead of this spread. He's headed towards Damascus. Letters in hand, ready to arrest a reign and to bring back to Jerusalem. And so as he's en route to wreak havoc, he has an experience. He has an encounter with Jesus. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so what we see is this almost a spotlight shining down out of heaven. And it hits him, and he falls to the ground. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the voice comes with this repetition, not just Saul, but Saul, Saul twice. It conveys this deep emotion for him. And it's a voice not of judgment, but it is a voice of rescue. Heaven reaches down and calls upon the name of Saul on earth. And so Saul responds. He says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in that, we see this incredible solidarity between Jesus and his church. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. Because Jesus is the head of Of the church. And so if you are attacking the body, you are also attacking its head. Let's take a look at verse six. God says to him, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And so Saul gets this command. The Lord Jesus has revealed himself as his authority now. That Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control. It is Jesus that will lead his steps to tell him where to go and what to do. Verse 7 tells us this. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So everyone is stunned. Everyone hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But only Saul could see Jesus because everyone else around him is still blind to the truth. Saul has a collision here with Jesus. It's almost like a traffic accident. Two forces colliding together. Because what had happened is that Saul had constructed his own God in many ways. And I think we see that a lot in our own city. People kind of constructing their God to say, okay, you know what God is like? He loves All the things I love. Yeah. And you know what? He's for all the things that I'm for. Right? And so we construct a God. But the problem with that is this. That if you construct a God, that God cannot help you. That God cannot save you. That God is just a mirror of you. And so... Paul, on the road to Damascus, crashes into the real God, the living God. He crashes into Jesus Christ. And what he finds is a God who is different than what he thought. What he found is a God that maybe he doesn't like everything that that God has to say. Maybe he hears in that God speaking, I don't like everything that you do, Saul. He tells me things about myself that I don't like. And guess what? That's a good sign because it means you haven't constructed a God. It means that that God is bigger than you. And that's real. You know what that is? That is relationship, right? Because relationship has, whoa, I hear things I don't like sometimes. Right? If we think about that with, uh, with a family, if you go to my house and you see my wife and children, imagine they just love everything that I love. And they never say anything to challenge me at all. Is that relationship? No. You know what that is? That's just cardboard cutouts. And so if we construct a God, it's just a cardboard cutout. But real relationship means Pushback means challenge. My wife and children are real because they tell me things I need to hear. They tell me things that I don't want to hear often, right? And that is relationship. And that is what we have in a God that we can't construct. And so Paul has this collision with the real living God And he has an experience with the real living God. What happens? His soul is shaken. He's brought to the ground. His legs are cut out from under him. Because the ground that he's been standing on is sinking. Because reality is not what he thought. His identity is not what he thought. All along, I thought, this is who God was. And all of a sudden, phew, it's not true. God is completely different. He's someone else than I thought. Who was I in that? I was an obedient Pharisee, right? I followed the rules, and that's what made me acceptable. And here he finds something different. That his identity is not In being a rule follower, a rule keeper. His identity is not in lording that over other people as it was as a Pharisee. And that means his belonging has also been shaken. I was part of this community. If that community is based on something that's not true, I don't belong there anymore. And so it's this huge shift. His purpose has been shaken. His purpose is power, control, get rid of Christians. And when he collides with Jesus, that purpose is over. It's been shaken. It's been crushed. Verse 8. Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. His eyes were opened to the truth. Yet the glory of the living Jesus blinded him. And now he can't physically see. And he has to be led by the hand to Damascus. Think about the irony. When he got on that road, he was heading there with power, with pride, and now he enters a city in humility, in weakness, led by the hand he can't even see. So what does he do when he gets there? Verse nine, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he is in darkness for three days, he can't see anything. And during that time, he fasts, very much like we're doing through Lent. He fasts and he prays. What is he doing? He is thinking. Let's just sit inside of Paul's mind for a moment during that period of time. What would it be like? What is he trying to process over those three days? Because he's fasting, he has no distractions can't see, he won't eat, and all those, those pains and that darkness draws him to God. He is emptied and now longing to be filled. So what is he doing? As he's thinking, he's trying to make sense of the scriptures. He's a Pharisee. He knows the Old Testament. But now he's going to make sense of it in light of Jesus in light of the cross, in light of resurrection. And so imagine he's got to retrace the whole thing and now see it through that lens of Jesus. And so when he sees those covenant promises, there'll be one who will crush the seed of the serpent from Genesis. That's Jesus. When he gets to Abraham, You'll be a blessing and bless all the families of the earth. How does that happen? Through Jesus. He gets to the law, all these rules, right? That's a picture of Jesus. To the temple, all these sacrifices. What is that pointing? It's pointing forward to Jesus. To the prophets, who were they talking about? It was Jesus. And so he has to completely reconstruct everything that he's learned in the Old Testament. And now he sees it through the lens of Jesus. And maybe for the first time, he's really praying. As a Pharisee, he said his prayers. You know what I mean? We can say our prayers, and then we can pray. And so for the first time, he has this intimacy With God through Christ because he's experienced Him. And so, in those three days, as he's fasting and praying, I think in there there's gonna be worship. Wow, this is who God is. He's a God of mercy and grace. I've been spared. And so, prayers of gratitude, questions of direction, okay. My direction's been changed. I've turned. Where am I going? What do you have for me, God, now? What would you have me do? And prayers for healing. Right? He's blind. He can't see. Well, while he's there for three days, there's another man that God speaks to. His name's Ananias. He was a disciple He was a member of the way. You heard that phrase earlier in the passage. Christians were first known as people of the way. It was the way of salvation, the way of life. And it had spread, it had gone into Damascus. And so one of those people that it spread to was this man, Ananias, Ananias member of the way. And God comes to him and he gives him a vision. He says, I want you, Ananias, to go to Saul. And he gives him the exact street and location. And he says, when you get there, you're going to find Saul praying. And guess what? I've also given him a vision. I've given him a vision of you coming and laying hands on him and restoring his sight. Okay? How how does that feel if you're Ananias? Well, guess what? Ananias is like, "Uh, I don't know if I want to go do that. I've heard of this guy, Saul. I know the evil that he has done. I know the papers that he's carrying with him. That he finds anyone that's part of the way, anyone proclaiming Jesus, that he'll be arresting them? Like, do I really want to go and talk to that guy? Let's take a look at uh, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so he goes. Ananias trusts. He trusts and obeys. And he goes. And he's told that Paul will suffer. And that is not a punishment. That suffering is that he's walking the path of Jesus. He will be a servant. You see, his previous view of leadership was an iron fist. Now the view of leadership is to come along and suffer. That's what it is to be a leader. And so Ananias goes. He trusts God. Let's take a look in the next couple of verses. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands upon him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales, Dr. Luke is telling us, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. The first words that Saul hears from Christian lips is this Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Imagine that. He calls him brother. He's saying, We are now family. Saul was guilty of so much evil, and here he is forgiven. And he's adopted into the family of God. He is a child of God, which now means he is a brother to Ananias. Enemies to brothers because of what Jesus accomplished. And now, because of what Jesus has revealed to both of them, they've both had an experience, an encounter with Jesus And something then like scales fall off of his eyes and his sight is restored. And so he rises up and he's baptized. What is that? He is now marked by this new identity. He is numbered as part of God's children. He is marked with God's promises. And he then takes food and he's strengthened. He's strengthened for his new mission because he is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. And so what is that mission? Well, he immediately begins to preach in the synagogues, proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. And everyone who hears him, what, what do you think the reaction is? They're amazed, right? Wasn't this guy just five minutes ago arresting Christians? And here he is now preaching Jesus. Isn't the whole reason he's here right now to bind up anyone proclaiming the name of Jesus, arrest them, take them back to Jerusalem? And yet here he is proclaiming Jesus. And he gets stronger and stronger. Stronger in his conviction. Stronger in his message, proving that Jesus is the Christ. It's Saul's life that is serving as this proof of who Jesus is. The Jesus who was crucified and uh, resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven who gave us his spirit to be bold witnesses throughout the earth, that this Jesus, ruling and reigning right now, Saul's transformed life is proof of that. And your trans life, your transformed life is proof of that. My transformed life is proof of that. Now, how do you think the other Jewish people are going to respond to this? Not too favorably, right? They plot to kill him. Disciples, who were once the objects of Saul's wrath, are now his friends, his brothers, and guess what they do? They help him escape. So he escapes, he goes back to Jerusalem, and he gets there. How do you think he's received there? Everybody's terrified of him, right? They weren't sure. Has this guy really changed? They're suspicious at best. But Barnabas takes him to the apostles and reports everything that happened. How Jesus appeared to him on the road. How he had been boldly Preaching Jesus. And so then Saul goes about continuing his ministry. He preaches to the Hellenists, who are uh, the Jewish people that speak Greek. He preaches to them, and they want to kill him. Seeing a pattern here. And so Paul leaves Jerusalem, and he eventually gets to Tarsus. And in all of this, guess what keeps happening? The church keeps growing. God takes the greatest enemy and makes him a brother. And he makes him an instrument of grace to spread and grow the kingdom. It's beautiful. It's it's a conversion, right? But but what is that? What is that? What is a conversion exactly? Here's what Paul is not doing. Paul is not just adopting some new moral structure, right? Okay, Paul, you believe this. We want to convert you to believe these things instead. Follow these rules. Do these things. That even feels a little bit imperialistic, right? If we go to a place say, well, oh, you people can't believe this here. you got to believe this now, right? But that's not what conversion is. Conversion is freedom. We have these ideas of what gives us worth, what gives us value, right? So if we think about what those are typically here in this place, in our city. What do we think? Well, what gives me value is success, fame, family, right? Those aren't necessarily bad things. But then we have this burden of trying to live up to them. Okay, if I have worth, I've got to do this stuff, right? I've got to achieve. Even if, if I make my worth, I'm a good person, right? What happens when I'm not? Oh, So we set up this, this construct and these burdens that we can't even keep up with. And they're crushing. And what conversion is, is freedom from those burdens. Conversion is encountering Jesus as the one and only one who can set us free. Conversion is turning from the burden we put on ourselves or the burdens others put on us and turning to Jesus and trusting in his life, death, and resurrection as the source of our worth. Isn't that so much better? It's freeing. Conversion, then, is becoming a completely new person, a new creation. And that's what happened to Saul. He became a new person. Well, how does it happen? Another one of the books that he wrote. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 6 tells us this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So think about this. The God of all creation, who created all things out of nothing by the power of his word, In Genesis 1-3, God said what? Let there be light. Right? And by that same word and power, God looks into our hearts and says that very same thing. Let there be light. Can I say let there be light in my heart? No. Only God can do it. Only God must do it. We can't convert ourselves. We can't convert anyone else. That is a work of God. That's the only way that we can come to know God. It's the only way that we can come to know the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. It's the only way our identity can be transformed. It's the only way we can be healed by our blindness. It's the only way we can even realize we were blind in the first place. It's the only way we can say, I was blind, but now I see. And so, what does conversion look like? What is it? It's God saying, let there be light. But what does it look like? Now, we shouldn't think it always looks the same. If we go through uh, the New Testament, we'll see conversion looks different in different places. And sometimes it's real easy for us to put more value on sort of one uh, aspect of conversion, one example of conversion, right? And so we go, "I I I want a better story, God, right? Like, mine's kind of boring, right? Can't can't I have the story of, uh, you know, I was like a horrible person and killing people and I was in the ditch in the gutter and then something miraculous happened and transformed. Like, we say, oh, that's a real conversion. But that's not the way conversion always works, is it? Think about the disciples, they were with Jesus for three years. And at points, it seems like, yes, you got it. And other, point, other points, you don't get it at all, do you? Right? And so it's this whole process of learning. So conversion can look different. For some, God might say, let there be light while you're persecuting Christians, while you're doing great evil against others. For some... He may say, let there be light while you are self-destructing. Doing the things that you think will bring you joy, but are in reality tearing you apart. For some, he may say, let there be light while you're living what you believe to be a good moral life. Trying to earn your way, trying to carry that burden. For some, he may say, let there be light before you can even remember because you were born into a Christian family. Whatever it is, the point is, unless God says, let there be light into your heart, you will be blind to him. You may be like Saul's men. I hear something, but I can't see it. And it should remind us this, that no matter what salvation looks like, every time, it's a miracle. Every single time. And so you might think, okay, am I saved? What's the evidence? Well, I want to give us just a few things here that shows us the evidence. One, When God has said, let there be light in your heart, there is an intimacy with him. Knowing him, not just knowing about him. There's relationship. So intimacy with God. Two, sacrifice. When God has said, let there be light into your heart, you will have a new willingness to sacrifice because you have a savior who has sacrificed for you, who has suffered for you. And so what happens is your selfishness begins to go away. I want to paint a picture of hell for you that's the exact opposite of those two things. Hell is a place where there's no intimacy with God. And hell is a place where everyone is completely focused on themselves. But when God says, let there be light, those things go away. And thirdly, the third evidence for God having said, let there be light, is a desire for community. You are saved into a people, into a community. And really, you can only know Jesus in community. I had a conversation this week with someone and they had a great line. They said, you know, I'm realizing that to be far from God's people is to be far from God. And that is exactly right. And so Paul, Saul, we see as God says, let there be light into that heart. These three things. We see this new intimacy. We see this willingness to suffer. And we see this desire for community. He is baptized into it. He is part of a people. And that's true for us. And so church family, these are really good reminders for us. How to work out our salvation, right? To seek those things. To seek more intimacy with God to ask God by His Spirit to enable us to suffer, to sacrifice, to be others-centered, to tear away at our own selfishness, and to desire and be part of community. And that will be beautiful. Can we do it together? Let's do it. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for this word today. It is a beautiful story that you are the hero Lord, it can only happen because you say, let there be light. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for the ways that you have said that uh, to those here. And, Lord, I pray for anyone who has not uh, experienced that, Lord, uh, in this place today, that you would say, let there be light. That those who haven't experienced you would have a collision with you and come to know the true, the real, the living God. And Lord, we want that for our city. We want more and more to experience the freedom of salvation, to have the burden ended. And so Lord, help us by your spirit to be witnesses of this good news. Help us to welcome in those uh, who were not once part of a people, but now are. And, and not with suspicion, but, Lord, to say, brother, sister, you are one of us now. Enjoy the freedom. Enjoy the community. So, Lord Jesus, help us to live this out. Uh, we give you thanks and we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.